It's a famous comedian named Steve Martin that once said, some people have a way with words, and others, well, uh, not have way. I can relate to that. I feel like there's sometimes when I'll, I'll make a statement that I feel is very true, but lacks context, you know, or I feel like I need to kind of back it up and, and clarify it after I say it right. Give or tell someone, hey, you look really nice today. I mean, not, not that you don't look nice every day, right? I'm not saying like there's need for improvement there. I'm just saying today you look especially, I never mind, forget I said it, right? You ever try to like encourage someone and say, hey, you've, you've really grown a lot in this area. It's kind of like a backhanded compliment, right? Like, I'm not saying, like, you were, you were bad at it before, right? I'm just saying, like, I've seen a lot of improvement there, right? Or I've, I finally got around to reading that book that you gave to me. I mean, not that I was putting it off or didn't want to read it. I just didn't, you know, didn't have time. As other, Never mind, right? Sometimes I feel like I spend more time explaining what I'm not saying than what I'm actually saying is what I'm getting at. Um, and oddly enough, we see Paul actually doing something very similar in this text today. What we're going to see is in this passage, he spends more time explaining what he's not saying than what he is saying. But in that, we've got some really good stuff that God has given us to look at. Um, So let me give you just a little context about why Paul is saying the things he is in these verses. So Paul planted this church in Philippi 10 years before this letter was written. So he went to Philippi on his second missionary journey, started this church, right, And this church was one of the few that began to support him financially. And even as he went out from Philippi to some of the other cities near there, this church continued to be a faithful source of support for him on a financial level. Um, But Paul went a lot of places and um, did a lot of things. And over the course of 10 years, at some point, that connection just kind of faded off. And we don't know Why, if it was because the church in Philippi maybe just didn't have anything to send because things had changed for them or just kind of out of sight, out of mind, or what the deal was. But for whatever reason, that connection and that support had kind of faded off. But here, as Paul is writing this letter 10 years later, he finds himself in a Roman prison. And I want you to get a little bit of context of what's going on with Paul. In Acts 28, verse 30, when Luke's writing about Paul's life, he says this, talking about his time in Rome when he wrote the book of Philippians. It says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. So again, Paul is under house arrest. And not only that, but he's being forced to pay his own rent. And that's actually the reason the book of Philippians is written, is it's like a four-chapter thank you note. All right? The whole reason Paul wrote the book is to thank them for the gift that they had sent with this guy named Epaphroditus, right? that they had sent this gift to Paul to help him in this situation financially, and maybe there were some books and other stuff, who knows, but they were there to support him. right? And then Paul's writing to thank them for this. In verse 10 he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length, or some versions say now finally, you have received, you have revived your concern for me. So Paul says, I was so grateful to get this gift that finally you guys are showing concern for me again. And you can almost hear him, if you keep reading the text, kind of walk that statement back, right? He's like, no, no, that came out wrong, right? It's kind of what he's saying. Look in verse 11. He says, "Uh, you were indeed concerned for me, but but you had no opportunity, right? He kind of starts making an excuse for him. Like, okay, I'm not saying you didn't care, right? I'm not saying I fell off your radar. I'm just saying you didn't have... You didn't have a chance to help out. And then he keeps going in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, right? I was, I was fine, guys, right? For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
And the rest of this passage, Paul just goes into this explanation of what biblical contentment is. But before we move on to the topic of contentment in this text, I want us to take a little bit of time on the thing Paul was actually saying, because the rest of this text, he's, he's explaining what he wasn't saying, right? But what he is saying is this gratitude, right? Thank you so much for this gift. I'm so glad you finally revived your concern for me. But then he, he wants to show them that he's giving them the benefit of the doubt, right? That even though he hadn't heard from them in a while, even though there was a gap there, Paul doesn't assume the worst. And just before we move on to the rest of the passage, I want us to learn that lesson that I think is there for us this morning, that Paul, when going through a period of silence from this church that used to support him so faithfully and diligently, chooses to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? You don't see Paul going, you guys just forgot about me, didn't you, right? Or you guys just did this, or you guys just don't care anymore, right? No, instead, he's like, now nah, probably you just didn't have the opportunity. He kind of lets them off the hook a little bit, right? And that's a good thing to remember because I know there's been times in my life where going through a difficult season and I expected support from people in a certain way, in a certain manner that did not come, that it's tempting to like in that situation go, I bet that person doesn't care about me the way I thought that they did, right? Or to kind of assume the worst about why they didn't do the thing we thought that they would do. But there's an encouragement here from Paul's example, to give our brothers and sisters in Christ the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they just didn't know how to help at time. Maybe they just weren't even aware of my needs. That certainly could have been the case here with Paul in this church, that they may just have not known what was going on with him or how to get in touch with him. But Paul chooses to give them the benefit of the doubt in that situation. And the rest of this passage just, I think, challenges us to take a look at what biblical contentment means. So verse 11, Paul goes on and says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So what is contentment? First thing I want to do is look at the actual meaning of the word Paul used. Now I'm not, I'm not a big like go back to the original language and dive that deep kind of person because I don't ever want to give the impression that, you know, what we do as pastors in our study, that's some like higher level that someone in the congregation could never attain because they don't have the resources or background or anything like that. But at the same time, there are instances where it can be helpful to add a little more context to look at the meaning of the word. And so the meaning of the word Paul actually used there is a political word, and it means this. It's talking about a country that is so self-sufficient it has no need of foreign imports. So keep that in mind as we're talking about contentment. That's the word Paul used. It was a word that would describe a country that they had their own water, right? They had their own food. They had their own minerals. They had everything they needed to survive and thrive, and they were not looking for help from the outside. They weren't placing their hope in something from outside of their own place, their own setting to come in and save them to come in and rescue them. And that's the idea of biblical contentment Paul's talking about. He's in this prison when you would think he would be asking someone to help me, someone get me out of this, but he's saying, no, I got everything I need right here because Jesus is enough, right? That's the contentment we see Paul talking about. One commentator I read, Steve Lawson, said it this way, this speaks of a calm acceptance of his present lot in life. 
To be discontent would mean that Paul wants to be somewhere else than where the sovereign hand of God has placed him. And to have more than the sovereign hand of God has chosen to give him. To be content is to have a peaceful acceptance of where God has providentially placed him. So contentment is this idea that Paul says, I know that ultimately, regardless of what situation I am, regardless of what circumstances come my way, I will be okay. I may not necessarily be happy about it. I may long for something better. It may not be what I would choose, but I will be okay because Jesus is enough. Not only that, but I will be free to thrive and invest in others in any situation I find myself in. That's actually what Paul's talking about in verse 13. You guys know Philippians 4.13, some of you. If you've been around church a while, you know that this verse gets used in all kinds of different ways. In fact, if you've been around church for a really long time, it's become kind of a joke in in Christian culture, right? That people use Philippians 4.13 to say things that it's just not ever intended to mean. In fact, um, one of my favorite gifts I've ever gotten at Cross Point Community Church is from uh, the Jollikers. I see them back there. They gave this mug to all of our uh, pastors at one point a few years ago. And I always reach for this one just because it makes me think of them and it makes me laugh. But it says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. So it's a great, great mug and great gift there. Um, so, but that verse is often taken out of context. And what I mean by that is you see it a lot in like sports settings especially, right? People kind of use it as like a pregame rallying point. Like, hey guys, we're about to go out there. We're about to crush the other team, right? Why? Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And the reason that's out of context is because that verse isn't talking about conquering. It's talking about contentment. When Paul wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he wasn't talking about going out and gaining some great victory in a sports context. He was talking about even in prison when everything has been taken away, I know I will be okay because Christ is with me and he is enough. It's not a verse about conquering. It's a verse about contentment. In fact, it would be a more appropriate verse to be used after a heartbreaking loss in a post-game setting, right? Imagine if you were working all year, several years, to achieve this goal. The moment finally came, the big game was there, and your team lost. That would be a time to apply this verse of, look, I don't have to be living in devastation. Yeah, I may be disappointed. Yeah, this may not be what I hoped for. Clearly, we were hoping to win. But you know what? I can be content in any situation because my ultimate hope was not in that game, but my ultimate hope is found in Christ. I can bear all things. I can get through anything through Christ who strengthens me. So I want to look at a few things regarding biblical contentment. We're just going to make three very practical observations about what Paul is talking about here, what it means to have biblical contentment. And the first thing is this, that biblical contentment is being okay if everything changes. Imagine great loss or great disaster that might be in the future. Biblical contentment says no matter what comes in the future, no matter how bad things may be, I will be okay because I have Jesus. As the reality is, many of us, myself included, can spend too much of our lives being driven by fear of the future. We can spend a lot of our, our time, a lot of our lives, a lot of our energy working against the things we're afraid of that might be 
around the corner. Let me give you a few examples of that. One of them might be fear of failure, right? That we become not motivated to accomplish positive things with our lives, but become motivated to avoid failure instead. And one of the things that, that can, contentment does, I think, is it, it frees us from the fear of failure. But I think sometimes we, we equate contentment with idleness, right? Sometimes we even use it that way, like, hey, that guy, he's just content to live in his mom's basement the rest of his life, right? That's not the kind of contentment Paul's talking about. He's not kind of talking about a contentment that leads to idleness. In fact, it may be a contentment that leads to taking more risk, Because we know that no matter what happens when I take that risk, whether it goes bad or good, Jesus is going to sustain me. So when we think about our status in life, maybe even our career, where we want to be financially, what our goals are, what we want to accomplish, what we hope to achieve, there ought to be some freedom to to take risks, right? That God has given us dominion over the earth. He has said, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Go out and accomplish, like create art, conquer things, take the world into your hands and, you know, subdue it, right? God has given us this creative creation mandate to take the, take the bull by the horn, so to speak. In fact, um, one of our uh, staff members, Scott Sutton, he's got an office up at Open Space now, and on the wall in his office, there's this little porcelain figurine of a, a bull. It's real small. It's like that big on the wall. It seems like an odd choice to me, but he told me that he likes to just go grab the horns just to remind him to kind of take, take the bull by the horns in life, you know, and be assertive. But that, that's the kind of contentment that it ought to free us up to make those kinds of decisions when we know that even if we take a risk, we'll be okay on the other side of it because God is enough. Now, you know, that's not a license to be crazy and reckless, obviously, but it ought to remove some of that fear of failure. Um, another thing that that may flesh out is the idea of a, a fear of disaster, right? How many preppers in the room? We got any preppers? I know a few of y'all, yeah. Some of you guys, you got your solar panels, right? You got your extra garage full of canned goods, right? Like, no matter what happens, you're going to be ready, right? And I'm not saying that's bad, right? That's cool. I mean, I'm just one of those guys that I just want to know someone nearby who is a prepper so I don't have to give up all the space. I can just go to his house, right? Um, the problem is there's probably too many of us. But if we're not careful, if you lean that direction, you can become so afraid of disaster and so trusting in your plans and your preparation that that becomes your ultimate security and your ultimate place of contentment rest in things that moth and rust can destroy. Because the reality is, no matter how big your garage is and how many cans you have set aside, that can all go away. In fact, I read a stat the other day that said, even among preppers, one out of one people die. Have y'all heard that? Like, no matter how much you prep, eventually your time is still going to come. So your contentment can't be wrapped up in just being able to survive in a disastrous situation. In fact, Scripture tells us the real disaster in life is not what happens in this world, but what happens in the next, right? That the real disaster we should fear is not political or a natural disaster or a disease or anything like that. The real disaster to be feared is the story Jesus told about the two guys who built houses. One built it upon the sand, one built it upon the rock. Same house, both great houses, but when the storm came, one of them was decimated, and he says, great was the loss. The greatest loss you and I have to fear 
is the loss that comes with investing our entire lives, chasing the things of this world so that when the time comes of judgment, we have nothing to show for it eternally. That's the disaster we should fear more than anything that could happen in this world. So when these fears come up, these fear of disappointing others, these fears of disaster, these fears of failure, one of the things Emily and I find helpful when we, when we look ahead and just think, what are the things we're afraid of? What are the things that make us nervous, that make, make us anxious? Is just to ask this question, what's the worst thing that could happen? Right, if you get in a pickle, you get in a bind, something's coming up that like could go either way, you're nervous about it, just ask, what's the worst that could happen? It's interesting the way Paul answered that. Paul's like, what, what am I going to die? To live as Christ, to die as gain. Hey, I win either way, right? That's what we saw in chapter 1. Paul says, even if I die, that's still a win, right? And so biblical contentment means living in that reality that even when the worst possible thing happens, we still have Jesus, so we still win. So being, living in biblical contentment means being okay if everything changes, but it also means being okay if nothing changes. If today is as good as it ever gets, contentment means Jesus is enough in that. I'm going to bring the kids up. We're going to do a quick kids lesson. So if you got little ones, please send them on up here. I didn't bring my quilt today. I forgot it, but you guys come on up. If you're under fifth grade or so, come on up. And John Mark, come on, man. Oh, you're just coming back. Okay, got you. Thought he was coming. Come on, kids. What are y'all waiting on? Let's go. There we go. I see Ryder. Josiah, I knew I could count on you, man. Thanks, man. What's up, Maverick? What's up? Good to see you, man. Y'all come on up here. Even my kids are here now. This is awesome. All right, y'all grab a seat. Just sit down there. All right, we got more coming. Y'all come on. Don't be shy. This part's for you. I'm just going to ask you guys some questions today, okay? And I'm just going to be kind of crazy, so I need you to raise your hand so I can get one answer at a time, all right? All right. I want you to think about your favorite thing to eat. Could be a main dish, could be a dessert, could be a kind of candy, just your favorite food. And when you've got it, raise your hand. All right, what you got? What's your favorite food? Pizza. Popcorn. Okay. You ever had both? Pizza and popcorn? It's a good combination. All right. She got married. Oh, you got two? Three. Okay, let's hear them. Pizza, popcorn, and ice cream. That's a good meal right there. That's a three-course meal. What you got? Ramen? Did you say ramen? <laughs> wow. All right. That's, that'll work. Ice cream? Donuts. That's my man. All right. Back there. Yeah. Cotton candy? What about you? Pizza. Lots of pizza lovers. All right. I have to bring you guys pizza sometime at one of these. Okay, let's shift gears. Let's not talk about food. Let's just talk about your favorite thing to do. Just If you could do anything today, you got to pick whatever it is. What would you do today? What you got? Go to Brahms. We're still staying on food. All right. What you got, Josiah? Playing games? All right. Casey. Go-karting. It's a good one. I hadn't heard of that one yet. What's up? Going to the fair. All right. I don't know if the fair is open right now. Go ahead. Ice skating. That's a good one. What about you? 
Riding, that's an easy one. Riding in the car. All right. You're just easy to keep happy, aren't you? All right. Well, let's, let me just, okay, that, what we're gonna, okay you got, you're just dying, aren't you? Go ahead. What you got? I can't remember. Okay, that's okay. All right. We'll stop there. But listen, here's what I want you to think about. Think about that thing that's your favorite, whether it's a food or an event or a place to go, a thing to do. Your favorite thing, like, get your hands down. We're not doing any more questions, okay? They're, they're, just think about it in your head, your favorite thing to do. What if I told you, you will never get to do that thing again? It would be so bad, you're right. But here's the deal. The scriptures teach us that if we really know and love Jesus, that even if all of our favorite and best things get taken away and we never get to do, it, do those things again, that we can still be content because Jesus is that good. Because he is enough. Going to Brahms too? Both of y'all, huh? All right. But even if you never got to go to Brahms again, as, as disappointing and heartbreaking as that would be, the scripture tells us that if we will believe and get to know Jesus, that he will be so good and so sweet to us that even if something as disappointing as those things being taken away happens, that we'll be okay because Jesus is that good. Does that make sense? So that's why we try to learn, learn about him. That's why we try to get to know him. We sing songs about him to remind ourselves of how good Jesus is, okay? Thank you, guys. Y'all can go back to your seats now. It's, uh, it's funny. I, I try to prepare these things for, specifically for the kids, but it's always so relevant to us as adults too, isn't it? We've got to get ask you guys the same question, right? Imagine, like, what is the thing you are looking forward to most in life? Like, what's the win in the future for you? What's the thing that, man, when that happens, I will have arrived, I will have made it? What if you never get there? Think about the way we live our lives oftentimes, and I've... I've I grew up in a, um, a small town up near Amarillo. It's actually called Panhandle. It's in the Panhandle, but it's called Panhandle. Um, very small town. The, the mentality out there is very different. You've got a lot, of, a lot of, especially men out there and women who, their career, they have one job their whole life, you know. They go to work for one company or one person or they farm, ranch, whatever it is. They do that thing and they do that for the rest of their life, right? It's a very different mentality I found here in the Metroplex where you know, we're always looking for the next opportunity, the next thing. We're always looking for the next breakthrough, the next job, the next change, right? The next thing that's going to make our lives a little bit better. We're always looking ahead for that next change that we want to happen. And in that panhandle-type community, the, they struggle more with the first part of this sermon where there's, there's kind of a fear of change that can provide a lack of contentment that they're afraid of that. But I think a lot of us in this setting struggle more with the fear of things staying the same, right? What if the job you have now, the level of income, and the number of vacations you get to go on right now is as good as it ever gets? See, for some of us, the fear of plateauing is greater than the fear of disaster. We have a hard time with the idea of, can I be content if I don't take the next step? What if three generations from now, no one remembers who you are? Man, that seemed like kind of a failure because I didn't do anything amazing or impressive or, or noteworthy. But what if that's the lot God has for you? 
What if your life isn't as much that of a Paul and is more like that of Epaphroditus? And you say, well, who is Epaphroditus exactly? What if that is the law God has assigned to you? Now, again, I'm not saying goals are bad, right? I think God is honored when we set and achieve goals, right? And there's something to be said for if, if there's things in your life you don't like, be like Scott, grab the bull by the horns and go after it, make a change, right? Do what you can, but there's some things that are just outside of our control. Think about singleness, right? If you're single right now and you're longing for and looking forward to being married one day, yeah, there's things you can do to go after that and you don't need to be so afraid of failure that you're frozen in that. At the same time, what if it just doesn't work? Can you be content? Doesn't mean you can't set goals. Doesn't mean you can't strive for things. Doesn't mean you can't get out there. But what if it never happens? Will Jesus be enough for you in that setting? I think God is honored when we have goals and we make great achievements, right? And think about astronaut Buzz Aldrin, right? He and Neil Armstrong, first two to walk on the moon. Buzz Aldrin got permission from his elders to actually take, did y'all know this? I didn't know this until recently. He took communion on the moon because he thought that would be cool. His elders gave it to him, gave him permission and all that kind of stuff. God is honored in that, like in this setting of goals and this going out and taking dominion over the earth. But what if we don't make those accomplishments? What if from here on out, it just kind of plateaus is Jesus still enough? When I think of biblical contentment, in this sense, I think of the phrase that every parent doesn't want to say to their kids, sorry, we can't afford it. No one wants to have to say that. But almost everyone does at some point, right? Maybe it's not we can't afford it, but we're just not going to spend the money on that. We have to steward our resources well, Right? I think those kinds of situations help us remember that our contentment is not in those things. It needs to be that knowing Jesus is enough. John Calvin said it it this way. If a man knows to make sure of present abundance in a sober and temperate manner, with thanksgiving, prepare to part with everything whenever it may be the good pleasure of the Lord giving also a share to his brother according to the measure of his ability and is also not puffed up, that man has learned to excel and to abound. In other words, whatever situation you find yourself in, whether it's a lot or a little, to be okay if that never changes, to be content in Jesus and not what's around the corner. Think again about the definition Paul used, this idea of a country that needed nothing from the outside, that if nothing comes in from the outside, if nothing changes, if everything just stays right here the way it is, I'll be okay because Jesus is enough. So biblical contentment is being okay if everything changes and being okay if nothing changes. And lastly, biblical contentment is attainable. That's why I titled the sermon, You Can Do It. It's a phrase that we... Don't use a lot in church settings because it sounds a little bit like self-help, right? Like, you can do this, right? But Paul is saying that. He's saying, whatever comes my way, I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. So contentment isn't this thing that just follows us around like a cloud just because we're Christians. It's a thing we have to lay hold of. And the way we do it is by being aware of the goodness of Jesus, by being aware of the gospel, 
we um, challenged you guys when we began this series to consider memorizing Philippians chapter 2, um, verses 5 through 11. And so we've been working on that in our house, trying to get that down. And I thought about that passage again. It's just kind of the central point, kind of the hub of the whole book of Philippians is this what was likely a hymn or something that, or, a, or a creed that Paul was quoting in those verses. Um, but in it, he challenges his readers to just consider and remember what Jesus has done for them. And I think when we do that, it, it, it pushes us towards contentment. It pushes us towards remembering and walking in the realization that he really is enough. So I want to walk through that passage with you guys real quick as we close. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, talks about who Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus was at the right hand of God, right? No troubles, no pain, no difficulty, right? Living, didn't even have a body to be hurt, right? He's living as a spiritual being at the right hand of his Father in infinite glory and riches and comfort in the heavens, but did not count it a thing to be held on to. But what did he do? Instead, he emptied himself, set all of that aside, pushed it over to the side by taking on the form of a servant, took on flesh, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Not only did he become one of us, but he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus loved us so much, wanted us so much to be with him, that he set aside all of his glory and riches in heaven, came down to be one of us, and not just one of us, but a lowly servant. Came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Went to the cross and died to redeem us and secure us and purchase us for himself, that we would be his brethren, and his father would be our father, and we would live with him in eternity. When you know someone did that for you, and that person is yours, and you are his, that is enough. Right? Like when you fully understand and get that, and when you're living with the awareness of what Jesus has done, the cost he had to pay to purchase you and redeem you and secure your future, yeah, that's enough. Those other things just don't seem to matter when you're living in that awareness. One of the things I love about Sunday mornings is, is our time singing together. Because it's one thing to to say these things, to read these things, to pronounce these things in kind of a, a prose format. But there's something special that happens when we artistically declare and proclaim those things through song, right? That we're reminding ourselves of how good Jesus has been to us, so much so that we're not just talking about it, but we're singing about it. The more we do that, the more we will learn to be content in whatever situation we're in as our affections and hearts are stirred and moved and reminded towards how good Jesus is and that he is not going anywhere no matter what else happens. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Um, just a chance this week to dive into what it actually means and, and not just the way it's been used for um, in so many different settings. And God, I just pray for this kind of contentment in us, um, not just to leave well enough alone, when is enough enough kind of contentment, but a, 
a resting and a, a peace that surpasses understanding that comes with the knowledge of how good Jesus is to us. May we always be aware of that. May you make us more and more aware of that every Sunday when we come in here and talk about how good you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.